Hi, this is Paul Jenkins, and you are listening to the Nerds Byword. Welcome back to another episode of the Nerd Byword, where the hosts are of German descent and a cup of nerdiness doth floweth over. Today we have a special treat for you. Legendary comic book writer and editor Paul Jenkins is with us, and he has delivered a fantastic interview. I cannot wait for you to hear it. But first, it's time to check in with the Nerd News. Chris, our socially distanced reporter, is standing by. What's new in the world of nerds, Chris? Jonathan Majors has been cast as an MCU villain, some are suspecting Kang the Conqueror. Uh, Jonathan Majors has uh, been cast in the third Ant-Man film, uh, which, if you didn't catch it, Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly are going to receive equal billing for, which is super cool. Uh, Director Peyton Reed is set to return. Jeff Loveness is writing the script. Um, And I love this. Kang is such a great character. Um, he's in some of my favorite episodes of a show that I recommended a couple weeks ago, uh, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Um, I really think that, that he has enough staying power to be a multi-film villain, maybe not on the level of Thanos, but, but certainly, you know, not just a one-off villain. Um, I think it's a natural transition for the MCU, uh, as time travel was introduced in Avengers Endgame for them to go to someone like Kang the Conqueror. Um, especially with, with Ant-Man being someone who is so integral to that, that time travel process. I think this is just such a smart choice. Um, and then Jonathan Majors has just taken Hollywood by storm in the past year or two. Um, he was in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, which, you know, is really, really well received. I haven't checked that out yet, but I've heard great things about it. Um, and Lovecraft Country for HBO Max, which has set digital records. And I, I can't wait to dive all the way into. So I, I'm really, really excited about this news. Dave, what do you think? I'm going to echo everything you just said. Uh, it's very exciting news. It's a smart character choice. It's a smart casting choice for sure. The only thing I'm a little worried about right now is that the MCU plans right away to play with time travel again. It seems logical after Endgame to touch on time travel again, but really the whole climax of this phase of the MCU hinged on that concept. I'm almost afraid that they're going to go to that well one too many times. On the flip side, debuting a a new villain like this who has the potential to be a multi- movie villain, an Avengers villain, uh, in Ant-Man is really perfect. Uh, it's an opportunity to give him time to build him up, much like Thanos was built up. So I could see this being quite an epic arc. I also really hope that this is a sign of things to come. Uh, the character of Kang has a pretty convoluted history, but I seem to recall that he has been pegged as a possible descendant of Reed Richards. So if if that's the case... This could be a step in the direction of an MCU Fantastic Four franchise. And I'm all for that. I love the Fantastic Four. Uh, It's been very disappointing to see how they've been treated on the big screen. The Fantastic Four done right uh, would be super exciting. So I hope this is sort of a, a slight step in the right direction. So my two cents here are pretty simple. I'm excited. The casting is great. I hope they don't go overboard with the time travel. Uh, and I want some Fantastic Four news. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, 
I, I, I tend to lean the same way that you are, you know, like maybe just like an initial jump to the, the current timeline, the, the MCU proper timeline from Kang. And then, you know, kind of just stay there and does it like, it's a really easy thing to make it kind of a campy cartoony and goofy thing. So I hope that they're, they're wise on this. Um, Dave, we had Xbox news a couple weeks ago and now Sony has spoken. What do you have for us? So they have uh, finally announced a release date and price point for what I assume will be my future Horizon Forbidden West delivery system, the PlayStation 5. Uh, the base model of the PS5 will cost $499, with an all-digital edition retailing at $399. The consoles are supposed to drop on November 12th, two days after the Xbox Series X and Series S. This is all pretty much as expected. Microsoft and Sony will be going head-to-head at the same price point for their best console. While the PS5 All Digital Edition is uh, only real difference is the lack of a disk drive, uh, the Xbox Series S is generally a weaker console, but that allows them to push the price point down to an entry-level $299. Here's the thing, though. After taking in all this news over the past few weeks about next-generation gaming, I find myself in an odd position. I've never been a console war kind of guy. As a kid, I played mostly on Nintendo consoles, not because of some sense of loyalty, but because I really just didn't know anybody who had a Sega console. They flew completely under my radar. Uh, Post N64, I started making my own money, and I started buying pretty much every console at some point, uh, even if I had had to wait a couple of years until the price dropped, or I could pick up a used system at a good price. So right now, there's an Xbox One X, a PlayStation 4 Pro, and a Switch all sitting in my living room. I I love games, uh, and I don't consider myself particularly loyal to one brand or another. I just want good games. And here's the sad truth about the current uh, upcoming generation. Um, The launch of these consoles are leaving me pretty cold, and I think it really comes down to the games. There isn't much in the way of, a, of launch games. I remember when the N64 launched, there was Super Mario 64. When the Switch launched, there was Zelda Breath of the Wild. Neither PS5 nor Xbox Series X has that one killer game that makes me want the system on day one. That's not to say that they don't have stuff coming that's extremely exciting. Uh, even, even at launch, I mean, Spider-Man Miles Morales looks fantastic. But it seems to also be almost like an expansion of the previous Spider-Man game, more so than a full standalone game. And so, really, I know I'll get the Series X eventually because I love playing classic games. And so the backwards compatibility with enhancements is totally my speed. I love Game Pass for allowing me to try new games, some I might otherwise would never have played. And eventually I'll probably pick up a PS5 too, uh, a couple years down the line probably. I'm certain that I want to play Horizon Forbidden West. Um, The first one, as our listeners know, uh, gets mad love for me ultimately. But at the same time now, Game Rant is reporting all these rumors that Sony's kind of getting cold feet and planning on releasing a lot of these big games also on PS4. So day one... Sorry, Sony. Sorry, Microsoft. You've probably built some great consoles and eventually they will host some great games. But right now, I don't see a reason to buy day one. Chris, what are your thoughts? 
I'm I'm right there with you. Um, and I also I I have to say like when you bring up the topic of console wars, I feel like there's a real sense of like snootiness by a lot of of Sony and and uh, uh, PlayStation gamers. Like as me as an Xbox user, I always like get online especially like oh you have an xbox oh you're an xbox person you're a microsoft person um and you know playstation does have some cool exclusives but you know i've I've talked about that before it's not enough for me to you know make irresponsible financial decisions for myself and for my family uh it's not enough for me um and 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 xbox game pass you know as as another um site uh you know, said it's the best value in video games. Like you cannot top Xbox Game Pass, and now they're including um, the EA Play as part of that. We're separate. You know, usually you had to pay for that separately. That's all part of one thing. I, I know that the PlayStation Store has similar things, from what I've heard, but you know, it doesn't come close. You know, when I when I've compared the two, um, and then I'm just happy where I'm at. Like I got, um, I've recommended. Tom Clancy's The Division 2 on on this uh, show before, and now that I've completed the expansion pack on that game, they have like a season setup similar to Fortnite without all of the horrible toxicity of Fortnite, without all the cartoony goofiness of Fortnite, without randomly building walls to the sky uh, that Fortnite has. So I have all the features that, you know at first interested me about Fortnite already present in division, you know, so without all the goofiness and I have like all these really, really cool features in division two. Now I noticed that they are not planning to have uh, a specific upgrade to the new console, but it is going to be backwards compatible. So like, I don't really see like any titles that I I've just got to have day one. Like you said, and I'm just, I'm a creature of habit, and I stick to a game, and I play that game for a while. And after finishing Red Dead, I went back to Division, and I, I, I saw this new season system after I finished the expansion pack. And like I've got like so much cool gear. I've got a customizable outfit that I texted you the other day, and I'll, I'll have to put it on social media. Like, I've got this cool, like, um, like they call it the Havana shirt. Like I look like Thomas Magnum and I'm walking around in a, in a Magnum PI, you know, tropical shirt and jeans and, and what look kind of like Converse. And I'm taking out like these anarchist, you know, agents. So it's like super cool. Like, and I'm really, really happy with where I'm at gaming wise and I'm not budging. Sorry. It's, it's interesting to me. Um, when when people stake so much of uh, their personal worth, I guess, on which console they game on. It's also sad to think about how easily people forget that this situation has been reversed in the past and, and things can change again. Um, I know the Xbox 360 era was far superior for a long time to the PlayStation 3 era. The PlayStation 3 had a rough launch, was notoriously difficult to develop for, um, the Xbox 360 did significantly better, especially for the first several years, and Sony basically had to play catch-up. And so the launch of the Xbox One comes along, and Microsoft miscalculated and made several 
uh, real bad mistakes that put them in a, a bad position for the generation. But I think they've also done a lot since then to to uh, bring gamers back. Uh, there's a positivity and, and, and a love uh, that is being put into stuff like Game Pass that makes it feel like you know, gamers first, basically. I, I feel very much catered to on Xbox right now. Um, so who knows what the next generation will bring? Um, I, I see no reason to be snooty because I own an Xbox, and I certainly don't feel snooty because I own a PlayStation 4. I just I just want some good games. And as of right now, this next generation probably has good games coming, but they won't be there launch day. They won't be there day one. And so I will take a wait-and-see approach, ultimately. Yeah, and I even saw, like, a Forbes article that was like, Sony does it again, and they just, like, strong-armed, you know, Microsoft and, and how they are clearly the superior uh, system. And... Uh, I, I'm just puzzled by why a publication like Forbes magazine would would come out and say something like to that effect. Simply, I mean, I mean, and 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 it looks like um like so many companies are looking down on on individuals like myself who are buying the S series, and they're kind of poo pooing that. And and the focus of that article was. Well, the main console for Sony is cheaper than the main console for Xbox, and they completely disregarded the S series, and, and that just really rubs me the wrong way. Like, I don't know. Well, that's just silliness. I mean, I appreciate the fact that we're talking teraflops and 4K and 8K capable gaming and all that, but probably right now the most played console in my house is the Nintendo Switch, which is as many Nintendo consoles have been across the generations, pretty much underpowered. It's ultimately what you do with it. And as long as I get a lot of fun out of this console, I don't I don't care about how high fidelity or how powerful. That's not a that's not a bragging rights situation for me. I, I just want good games and I want to have some fun with my games. Alright, so that is our nerd news segment for today. Next up, after the break, we'll be speaking with legendary writer-editor Paul Jenkins. You don't want to miss this. Stick around. All right, folks, and we're back, and we have a special treat for you today. We are here with Paul Jenkins, legendary editor and comic book writer, to talk about all sorts of parts of his career. Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm happy to be here, Dave. Well, we're very excited to talk to you. Usually, uh, traditionally, we kick off any interview we do with uh, sort of a nerd origin story. Uh, how did it all get started for you? How did you come into this wonderful world of nerddom, so to speak? Um, I think I probably have the strangest path of most people that you speak to. Um, I grew up in the West Country uh, of Great Britain, um, but my father uh, left my family when I was very young, when I was five, and he was suddenly gone. And my mom uh, moved my brother and I to a farm. Uh, so we lived on this little farm, but we, we were in a place we didn't have any electricity most of the time. We didn't have any hot water. Um, we were the poorest kids I've ever met. And uh, so I grew up in pretty extreme poverty. Um, and <clears throat> my family are all pretty interesting people. Even to this day, my brother lives in a, in a caravan on a site with no electricity. So we're all like 
from the wrong end of the tracks, you know, my whole family. And I was like the, the white sheep of the family. Um, I was different um, to some extent and I was very creative and I liked uh, sports and I, I liked anything but being at home. So um, I didn't have any immersion or any connection to creativity to some extent, um, but I was always writing stories for myself and making things and um, it probably to avoid home life. Uh, so an interesting part of that story is that I don't know if you're familiar with the origin of Wolverine, but um, the very first book is all about a kid who lives at the bottom of the hill and he looks up at the farm with the farm lights and he, you know, dog is at the bottom of the hill and, and the other kid is at the top. That's actually based on my, my upbringing. So um, I, I had a weird situation, no opportunity, no chance kind of thing, but I found a way to make it. And when I was 11 years old, um, my teacher's, realized that maybe I was had potential to do something so they found a way that I could get into a, a school that was one of those very British full fee paying kind of private schools you know we call them public schools actually um, and it was founded in 1553 by Edward VI <laughs> it was an, wow. had a royal charter to get poor children and give them an education um, so I went to that school and uh, I so I left home at 11 and I, I never went back really um, and then when I was 20, uh, I decided I might try to come to America to see what was here. And I came here and the next thing I knew, I was working for the Ninja Turtles. Um, so I have a really weird path into this. Um, but I had already previously left home. I had studied to be an actor. Um, I really like filmmaking. Um, I wanted to do anything. I, I, I'm a musician. You know, um, I, I do basically everything creative. And I suppose there's one thing, you know, I was connected to a friend of mine, Colin, uh, someone who knew me when I was a really little boy. And he said, I always knew you would work in comics. And I said, I, I didn't. So how did you know? And he said, well, when I would come into your house, you would always be laying on the floor drawing and writing. So he, and I, you know, used to make comics. Um, so I think that, that I was always going to be creative. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, now, as you mentioned, one of your first jobs in entertainment was working closely with uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, who were the co-creators of TMNT. What was that experience like, and, and how did it influence your work going forward? Um, well, the funny thing about it is that I didn't really know what... I have been part of so many big parts of the entertainment industry, of so many moments in history. Uh, it's hard to know that you're in it when you're in it. Uh, so we, you know, I had met them. They had sold the rights to make a, the toy and the TV show of their of their comic, and I met them just after that. Um, and they they had just, um, you know, they were just beginning to get the toys out and the TV show. And I said, well, why don't I come work with you guys? Because they knew me from town. They didn't. Some of the guys get an album cover for my band, uh, so knew <laughs> them. And I was waiting on tables, which is exactly what you are when you're a musician. You're a, you're a waiter basically. <laughs> and um and so i i kind of went upstairs and i i i started working with them in this tiny little office and next thing you know it exploded and because i was there i i've never been a person that really cared about like fame or attention or money or things like that i really care very much more about creativity and so while everyone else was getting very affected, and I will definitely say not Kevin and Pete, certainly not Kevin Eastman, you know, he, he was never affected by the money and the, the stuff. He was he stayed the same all the way through it. And that's why he and I became friends, because I really could care less. And so while all this was happening, we were going to 
I was on set sometimes with the films and, you know, we were making these books and I was surrounded by creativity. Um, and as you know, I went on to, Mar uh, to Tundra Publishing from there. And so I was Alan Moore's editor. I was Neil Gaiman's editor, Dave McKean, Rick Beach and everything. All creativity was normal. And I was a pretty normal person sitting in the middle of it going, hey, let's just do the job. So I saw it much more as work and much less as a, as a game or, or a way to make money. You know, and I think I was just immersed in creativity from the beginning. Uh, that you you really truly have worked uh, w with some of the greats in your career. It's absolutely incredible to think about. So after your extensive work as an editor, you made a successful pitch to become the main writer on Hellblazer, such a such a seminal comic book, really in in the history of the industry. And this was your first recurring spot as a writer. What what was that like to try to step into the shoes of uh, of of the Hellblazer franchise and and take over such a seminal book? Well, first things first, it was my first gig as a writer. I'd never written anything. I had I'd written one issue of a Ninja Turtle book. Uh, so I suppose it wasn't exactly my first, but I'd never become a professional writer. I'd, I wanted to. Uh, and I wanted to in part because I went over to Great Britain and I was sitting with Alan Moore, working with him on big numbers. And I was sitting with him and he was, he was telling me some of the ways in which he makes the story. And the strangest thing happened. Uh, I realized that a lot of what he was saying were things that I was already doing. So isn't that crazy, you know, that someone so accomplished as, as Alan was telling me about these things and and I was already doing them. So I realized, well, maybe I'm, I'm onto something here. So I went to San Diego Comic-Con and I had known the people in the comics, you know, industry for a while. And I just simply went to the editor of Hellblazer, and I said, well, I understand you're looking for a new writer, uh, Lou Stathis. And Lou said, sure, what have you written? And I said, well, I'll be honest, I've not written anything before. <laughs> 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 and, um, and he let me try out, and I, I do not know why. I, I don't know. I feel like Lou, Lou Stathis is the reason for my career. Um, because he didn't care. He was like me. He he didn't have any airs and graces about him. And the one thing that is really interesting about him, you know, he passed away uh, after I came on to help Laser. He, he died of brain cancer. And, you know, that was a, that was a tough moment um, for me personally, because he really guided me and he gave me a chance. And I didn't even realize what happened. But I will also give that thanks to Karen Berger, who helped me. You know, she said yes. How she said yes, I have absolutely no idea. But they suddenly had this guy that had never been in the comics uh, realm. You know, no one knew who I was, and I was suddenly writing Hellblazer. Now, to answer the second part of your question, I didn't care. Great. It's comics, man. Go for it. Like, I wasn't worried about it. Um, a lot of people said, we must be worried about following Garth. And uh, my answer was, no, not really. Why should I be? Um, I got things to say, and I had a different approach to Garth as well. He wrote, um, to some extent, he wrote a lot of city and a lot of a lot of London. But I wrote about where I grew up. I, I wrote about the countryside and the magic there, and the farms and the, the the magic of the English countryside. So I just was doing a different thing. I kind of wrote about how the the English kings, you know, the Arthur and all these Peridot and all these ancient legends that we think of, that's where I grew up, man. I literally walk out my front door and live there. So I wrote about that. 
Now, you're known for being a staunch supporter of creators' rights. Um, what inspired that in you, and, and what is your hope going forward in that area? When you've walked out of your front door and you stand there as a kid and you know what it feels like to be hungry, you know? And you know what it feels like especially to be um, under attack because we lived right with a lot of gypsies. And, you know, my family are all all pikeys, you know, they're all, they're all down the bottom of the hill, you know, uh, picking hops. We pick fruit to try to get enough money. And my mum cleaned the farmer's house and stuff like that. So when you've been in that position, you're going to go one of two ways. You're either going to get yours and then just tread on everyone else, or you're going to realize that, that everyone deserves something more. And uh, so I became very early on a person that would be ready to kind of want to help people and mentor them and and you know I, I my dad was gone when I was a little kid I didn't have a mentor didn't have a father um so I suppose that when I came here and I met Kevin and Pete and Kevin formed Tundra and I really got to understand the creator's bill of rights and what what people you know we built that out there you know and I just felt like why would we not nurture the people who supply the actual thing you know that, that who 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 supplies the product? Is it is it Marvel and DC? No. Nope. If it was Marvel and DC, then how come Marvel were in bankruptcy when I went there? You know, if if Spider Man could write itself, then how come they were about to stop publishing it and they had stopped publishing Daredevil? It didn't write itself. It needed the creators, and so we came in to rebuild. And so I've always been very passionate about that, and I've always been uh, relatively straightforward about it, possibly to my detriment. But the fact is that. The, the lifeblood of the product that people buy, it's not the publisher, although the publisher is a massive factor and thank you for publishing, right? You know, like they put the risk behind the money. It's not the idea or the story. They don't write themselves, right? It's the implementation and who implements it? The creators. And so if you want to create a new franchise, it doesn't get created because a, a robot creates an algorithm. If it was that easy, they would already have been doing it. It gets created by people like myself and other creators, and that's the people that deserve the recognition and especially the financial um, return for what they do. And those are the people who get marginalized and beaten the most, and I'm, I'm not into it. So I tend to be pretty vocal about it. Yeah, that that is fascinating, and 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 really glad that that you're speaking out for that. It seems like a lot of, uh, especially on the indie scene, a lot of the really small publishers seem to have some very <clears throat> poor treatment of their creative teams and the like, which is absolutely a shame. Well, they should never be doing that. Okay, Dave. They, they when a when a when a publisher comes to a creator and says, "I'll let you work, maybe if you do this for me," and what you know, it's indentured servitude. It is, you know, you, I'll let you, I'll pay you a paycheck, and it will be just enough to make you hungry enough to kind of come back to me again. But I own everything. I exploit everything. Those people should not be in business. Absolutely. You you have been in this business now for quite a while, working working in the comic book industry, and things certainly have changed over the last couple of decades. What to you are the most interesting ways that comic books have evolved over the years? Well, um, one thing that hasn't changed, right? So, but this is actually, you know, we, we may be looking at that change right now. I'm not sure because of COVID and because of the way COVID has really highlighted problems in in our society to some extent right so let me create a comparison and maybe this will help answer that question 
one of the things that happened when COVID first came into our lives was that there was a, a sheriff, I think, in somewhere in Austin, Texas, and said, you know, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to, because of COVID, I'm not going to put people in jail overnight for drunk driving. I'm not going to put them in jail for a few days, which raised the question, well, why the hell were you putting them in jail in the first place? Why were you hurting people and putting them in jail for a drunk driving thing or something like that? What, what was that all about? It was all about money. You know, we were not allowed on a plane with, you know, X amount of sanitizer until suddenly COVID hit. And then we were. Well, I thought the planes were going to blow up. So how come we're suddenly allowed on now? It probably highlights the fact that we had all kinds of problems. Same is true of the comic industry. It had lots of problems because ultimately it was a series of, you know, crossover events that didn't have any consequence. When I came on board with Marvel, they were in chapter 11 uh, and they were in trouble. And they did the thing that then they, they very rarely do. They allowed us to actually write the books and make something. And when that happened, um, it rebuilt their company just on a trajectory that went flying through the ceiling. All of a sudden, they were telling me, you can write anything. Go ahead and do all that stuff you want to do. You know, uh, uh, write the Hulk, write Spider-Man, you know, rebuild all of our content. And you can see how that works, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, 2006, 2007, they're about to sell to Disney and they suddenly go, yeah, we're good. Thanks very much. Of course they did, right? That's how it works. And, and you know, I've seen the retailers be treated with disdain ever since I've been in this business, right? The retailers are trying to make a buck. They're trying to just get some money enough to survive. But they're at the whim of these big publishers and these people that just, and Diamond, that, that you know, this exclusive from Diamond was terrible. That exclusive from Diamond, to me, felt like a monopoly. And it was for a long time. Just the one distributor where they said, well, technically there are more. But that wasn't true. There were, was one distributor that you could get yourself from if you were a comic uh, store. So maybe, maybe we're at the point, the tipping point, because everything's changed in the distribution of DC. You know, they've got a new distribution model. And what you're seeing now is maybe the retailers are having to work out if they can do things other than Marvel or DC. Because let me tell you something, superheroes are fun, right? but they're by far not the most interesting type of comic. You know, we can do crime and comedy and children's and all this. I mean, look at the fact that we've had almost no children's comics over the years. You know, they've not really had anything that was truly aimed at kids and to build. And if it was, it would be like mini superheroes. And that's cool. There's a place for the mini superheroes. But what about the fantasy stories and, the, you know, all the other stuff that kids like? We wouldn't publish that and we wouldn't distribute it. And retailers never felt that they could get it. So I'm hopeful that the retail and the sales methods of comics have changed, right? I'm hopeful with the advent of the Kickstarters and the, the crowdfunding and all of that, that the new form of publishing to some extent is let the public see it and decide for themselves. You know, I really want that to be the case. And I'm really hopeful that that, that will be the case. Uh, now, you, you've mentioned uh, your work on Spider-Man previously, but um, they're a personal favorite for me. Um, just that, that street-level return to, like, like Peter Parker. What are your favorite aspects about writing a character like Pete? Um, like, this is a character that's been around since, like, 62. What keeps people, do you think, coming back? And, and what was your favorite part about writing for him? Well, of all the characters I've ever written, that one was the character that's most like me, I think, because I'm pretty optimistic and I'm pretty steadfast in, in the way that I try to solve problems, you know. Um, I think um, 
any character, every character can be written in an interesting way. Every single one, right? Um, I had all kinds of villains that I hadn't gotten to yet, like the hypno hustler. <laughs> I didn't get to the big wheel, you know, I had it really good. <laughs> um, you know, if you as a creative person find a theme around the character, and for me, it was, can I define the character? Yes. Uh, I think that had he not been bitten by a radioactive spider, he would have been a teacher, right? He would have been someone that was always going to go down that road. And a lot of what I wrote was just exploring like who he was and why. But sometimes we didn't. Sometimes we said, let's just do a single issue about like him fighting a gang of mimes because it's funny. Like, and so there's a core of Spider-Man. Spider-Man is us. Spider-Man is me. Um, he is a person who sucks it up and takes one for the team and keeps going. I'm a dad. I've got two kids at home in COVID. I have to teach them during the day and then work at night. You know, there's a challenge in it, right? And no one sees that heroism, that heroism of teachers and, and parents and all that. That's kind of who he is. And we, we see ourselves in that. You know, we see ourselves reflected. When he's written poorly or when he's written in a, into a circle, it's just crossovers and stuff and powers and, and radioactive this and radioactive that. No one cares. And you ever, you, ever, you ever swung around dressed in your pajamas punching people? No. Well, not like now. You might have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but have you dealt with some of the issues that he's dealt with? Sure. And so we, we look at the, the things that he dealt with, and then we put him in costume and have him do that with really crazy big people like the Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus, right? Um, so I've always applied that to everybody, whether it be the Inhumans or the Sentry or, or Spider-Man or the Avengers or Wolverine, Batman, whatever. Just take them as a person and put them in that place and then work out who you think they really are. I just want to say, like, for me, Spectacular 14 that, that you did with Paolo Rivera on art, like, is just one of my personal favorite issues. And I actually live with slight cerebral palsy to see that issue and just to see that story being told. It just brought tears to my eyes. So just thank you for telling that story. Uh, thank you. And and that, that particular issue is an interesting thing because there was an element of what we did with that character who was afflicted with cerebral palsy. At one point, he says in his own monologue, you know, I was kind of acting like a brat today. He does. And we had a few people write in and say, how dare you? How dare you make him be someone that's not perfect? And we were like, listen, right? the best service we can give to any of our audience is to make every single character a real person with frailties and successes and stuff like that. Um, for what it is worth, you know, that idea of the kid with cerebral palsy um, morphed into an idea that I had for Marvel and DC where I wanted to take the X-Men and or, you know, superpowered people and take all the people that have a disadvantage, you know, like cerebral palsy or mental health issue and give them a superpower so that you would have the advantage and disadvantage. And they used to love it, but they would always say, well, we, we can't do new characters, uh, which I always thought was funny because I created the century. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so I went off and I did that as a book called Alters with aftershock um so i got to write uh, a character who who had cerebral palsy and i got to write a character who had broken his neck and was a quadriplegic and a character who's transgender and her issue to some extent is so indicative of of like the secret identity that people have to deal with when they're superheroes right so we could take people's disadvantages in society and use them as a real basis for an interesting story because let's face it 
every single person on this planet has a family member who, who may have a mental health issue or they have one themselves or they have a physical issue. You know, I broke my neck uh, playing football and it changed my life. And so right, I wrote about it in Spider-Man, funnily enough, Chris, I, I put it in there and uh, it was in the fusion story. And I also wrote about it in Altered. So, you know, uh, I think that you write about yourself for your audience. You know, much has been said about the uh, the Marvel Knights line and how it was uh, one of the things that really helped save Marvel as a company. What do you think was it about the Marvel Knights line that was so important to the survival of, of Marvel Comics? <clears throat> well, at the time, they couldn't publish anything. I mean, they, they, they had no successes with anything. Daredevil was being cancelled, you know. Um, and they seemed to be at a place where they didn't know what to do. And here we come, and they did the one thing that creative corporations never do, right? They said to us, um, "We're going to let you. <laughs> we're going to let you do the thing. We're going to let you create. You know, we don't know what to do. We broke it so fully and so completely that we have we are lost. And so they handed Joe." Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti the opportunity to do four series and they gave us like the cruddy characters plus Daredevil um, Joe and Jimmy and Kevin Smith turned Daredevil turned to a massive success right but we were given Inhumans uh, I was anyway because Jay that was Jay's idea he wanted to do the Inhumans and um, that was great because I'd never heard of him before <laughs> 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 and I, I don't know that much about characters and comics and stuff. And um, cause I, because I fundamentally think that any character can be written, you know, we could almost do that exercise right now. If you told me a character I'd never heard of and I told me their powers, I'd tell you what story you could write probably. And so we did the Inhumans and it won an Eisner and they just hadn't won an Eisner for a long time. Um, Black Panther was published for 50 issues. So of three out of four titles, were pretty successful, wouldn't you say? An Eisner Award winner, a really high-selling one, and one that sold 50 titles. At the same time, Marvel couldn't sell any of their other characters. They were really struggling, so they just kind of turned around and said, Joe, Jimmy, Paul, everyone, you do it now. You fix it. So they let us fix it. And they told me very clearly, like, they, they were like, you're, you're the guy that fixes our stuff for us, you know? Like the Hulk and Spider-Man, and, and then I got to write the origin of Wolverine because I pitched it to them, so... Now, there's a constant through line in, in most of your work that focuses on the psychological aspect of your characters and really getting inside their heads. Um, where does that idea stem from? Oh, uh, well, I think that's what you should do. Um, like, we're writing about people, right? Like, there's a, way, there's a way of looking at it if you take the boxer Muhammad Ali, right? Ali was the first person to realize that you don't care about the fight unless you care about the two people in a fight. So what he would do is get on TV and say, I'm the best, I'm a bad man, float like a butterfly, sing like a bee. He would just basically get in your face. And you'd either love him or hate him, but you couldn't ignore him. And so when his boxing matches came about, you were sitting there watching Muhammad Ali and you're like, I hope he loses or I hope he wins. You know, I loved him as a kid. That was the first person that I saw. It's one of the only memories I have with my father is watching Muhammad Ali when he boxed. I was a little kid, and um, and I won't forget it, but I, I don't forget him 
being there so forward and saying, I'm a bad man you know, and all that stuff, right? So you have to care about the people in the fight. And I think what the mistake is that people do, the publishers and that, is they, they make you care about the fight only, you know, and, you know, with crossover events and stuff. But ultimately, if you take a look at in humans, for example, all we ever did was just say, well, Black Bolt's a really interesting metaphor for being the, the leader. You know, he can't really speak his mind. Um, if he does, then everything blows up, you know, it blows up, you know, um, uh, Karnak was a great metaphor for a, a tactician or an advisor to the king. You know, he could see the flaw in everything in, in, in human society. So we just looked at the characters and turned them into people. And that's all I've ever done. Right. It's just try to make these characters into people. Every time an editor says, well, we need this and we need that. The answer is, well, you probably need someone else to do it. Not me. And you've also worked on several video games, uh, Twisted Metal Black, the Darkness games, uh, the, the God of War series. How does that process differ from, from writing comics and graphic novels? Well, you know, I, I got very interested in writing um, video games in the mid-90s. I, I realized that it was an art form. And, and what I found out was that the, the industry itself did not think it was an art form. So I ended up working with some crazy people like... Um, You know, I worked with Amy Hennig on Soul Reaver and Soul Reaver and the Legacy of Cain was about Gnosticism, you know, in a video game. And we, I, I know that we paved the way for the creation of other games, especially directly because Amy went on to be the creative director of Naughty Dog and they made Last of Us and they made the Uncharted series. So the, what we did on there in, in Soul Reaver became, you know, other games. When I worked on The Darkness, it's, a, it's an interesting game. I was allowed to be the the story approval because it was a top cow thing. And I'd already kind of come in and resuscitated the top cow uh, book. And so they basically said to me, you're your own approval, which was great because I went over to, to, uh, to Sweden and I worked with the developer and they were incredible Starbreeze. And they basically said yes to all the really good ideas. And they understood that we were making an immersive movie that was a love story. And they said yes to that. Now, the first publisher said, you got to be kidding me, no way. <laughs> uh, but they, they happened to sell, Majesco sold to 2K Games right in the middle of the process. And they said to me, what are you making, Paul? And I said, we're doing an immersive movie. And they said, groovy. So just because of all the consequences <laughs> of, of, of luck and everything, they let us make one of, I think, the most emulated games. And, and then, you know, when I worked on like Prototype, I created a thing called The Web of Intrigue. And it was really a series of fragments that you build out, which, um, you know, Assassin's Creed, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just have always loved video games. I love that form more than anything, interestingly. I like film and television, but I, I really like games. Uh, now, you've got a series of graphic novels called Fairy Quest over on Indiegogo uh, right now. Um, we've seen the incredible artwork, but tell us the story behind it. Yeah, so the world is called Fablewood, and it's set in that world. And the idea is that in Fablewood, you have all the genres of stories, right? So you've got horror and science fiction and children's stories and poems and all kinds of forms of storytelling, right? And all of the undiscovered forest of Fablewood is basically all the stories that have yet to be told. And so in the middle of it, the children's realm is one of the biggest because the children's stories have you know, been with us for so long. 
and they are run by a bunch of fascists called the Think Police. So we were pretty overt, right? It was like the thought. <laughs> and it's like 1984. They have all these signs everywhere that tell the characters, like, tell your stories, keep your story straight, do not deviate from your story. And if they get caught changing their story, they get their minds wiped in the dreaded mind eraser. And so, like a lot of children's stories, it's a little bit dark, right? Like Hansel and Gretel is pretty dark. It's about cannibalism. So we, what we did was we we had Red Riding Hood and the Wolf, and they are subversive. They love each other very much. They care about each other. And Red Riding Hood really loves the wolf because he lost his wife and his cubs to the very hunters that stay in their story. So every day he has to tell a story with people that he, he hates, and she loves him. And so they make a decision that they're going to run away, and they find out a pl the place called the real world, which is where Wendy came from. And they tried to get to the real world and they followed the yellow brick road in the opposite direction to freedom. So it's this cool story about friendship and love. If you're a five-year-old, you're like, wow, it's got Red Riding Hood and the Wolf and they like each other. And if you're a grown-up, you see it differently. Um, and then obviously the art speaks for itself, you know. Now, we, uh, it's, it's kind of becomes a, a pattern almost in the industry. Uh, a lot of comics heading to, to crowdfunding sites like Indiegogo and Kickstarter. Uh, we just interviewed uh, an author who's self-publishing his, his novels because that seems to be the better way to go. Wh why do you think uh, crowdfunding and self-publishing has become such an important trend in the industry? How about this? How about the fact that it's just honest? You know, because of the honesty inherent in the process, you, you know, there, there's there's some somewhat a, a lack of transparency, perhaps, if you go through what we had dealt with in comics up to this point. You know, it's sort of like, well, you go in a comic store and you're trying really hard to find a product and you've got crossovers and you've got things that tie into each other and all of that. And there's a great place for that, by the way. There's a great place for the mainstream, of course. And I think... That's the thing that people misunderstand about me. They must think that I somehow do not trust or like the mainstream. That's not true. I've made plenty of money in it and I've done really well, thanks very much. But but what's so great about what's so great about crowdfunding is you've got a creator and they put their content out and they go to people and they say, If you want it to exist, please fund me. And if you don't want it to exist, I get it. You know? That's a pretty honest way of cre creating things. And so uh, I like it. We've done Kickstarter. And we've done really well. And we moved it over to um, Indiegogo so that everybody could have a chance to see Kickstarter because we had never put Fairy Quest on Indiegogo before. So we put it up there and we're going to put it up on In Demand so that people can just kind of keep it there for as long as they want it to be. We'll add it to the way that we delivered um, on, on Kickstarter. And uh, hopefully we will, we will you know, get more uh, fans that we can go to on the next one because there's a part four for Fairy Quest. Uh, we have more stories in Fablewood, and we have actually a couple of brand new projects that I think people are going to really dig that we want to put out there. Uh, there's there's one that makes me smile. You, you guys can see me. I have a <laughs> face for radio, so uh, but you can see this. Um, there's one project that we've got that's some, something that everybody wanted for a really long time. Uh, it was in and out of L.A. I had it at a couple of studios, and I got tired of messing around with it, so I'm just going to build it myself. That's another answer to your question. I, I, I don't know why I need anybody like that sometimes, you know. I can build the stuff myself. And when you see that project, the next one that we do, you're going to go, I remember when he told me about that. He didn't tell us what it was, <laughs> but, but I see the project and I get it. I understand why everybody loves it. You know? It's kind of like a genius idea. <laughs> 
Um, now we're both huge Trekkies, and you've got a Star Trek parody called Warp. So you got to tell us about that. Where did that idea come from? Yeah, so we had been working on a on a Star Trek project. You know, we're not doing that anymore. Um, but while we were doing it, um, we had a, a long shoot. We had two or three days of working, and um, at the end of the last day, my producer and myself and our AD, we were all really tired, and we'd we'd had enough. You know. Um, so I said, hey, throw me what a lot of the Star Trek thing we were doing had to do with like interviewing people, you know. And so I said, throw me one of those shirts and just interview me. So our producer got on one side of the mic and he interviews me as a janitor that was in the middle of this battle. And um, I just showed up with a brick because I always think it's really funny that if you get out of Star Trek and actually have people like with a British accent, you know, like someone from London. Hello, mate. How you doing? <laughs> All right. <laughs> and so. We did it, and it was the best thing we shot in four days. We realized that was really funny. Um, so we decided, why don't we just take a day, get up on the set, put on uniforms, get a bunch of really good improv actors, and basically be the worst crew in Starfleet <laughs> out on the edge of um, out on the edge of the galaxy. And because they're on a five-year mission, they've sort of given up two years in, and they don't care. Like no one's watching them. They're so far away that they're just like, ah, oh, let's just. So basically, at this point, everyone on the ship has had sex with everybody else. You know, <laughs> just given <laughs> in. They they don't follow the prime directive. They don't care. They just sort of like land and go, "Hey, how you doing?" They just can't be bothered with it anymore. And the captain of the ship is from South London because I thought that was really funny. So you know, so we're ruining Star Trek one episode at a time. <laughs> uh, so you you've now uh, opened your own studio in Georgia, Meta Studios. Uh, what inspired you to go ahead and, and, and start your own studio? And what are what's sort of the mission statement? What are the goals you're hoping to accomplish? So as you can probably guess, it's very much tied into creators. Um, we, we started on day one. When you, when you create a business, you write a mission statement. And what you write is what kind of company you expect to be. So on day one, I wrote, you know, Meta Studios is, is there to make money making content because your investors need to know that you care about making them money back that will be delivered on time and under budget our core values are transparency accountability integrity proactive communication right those are our core values that our company will be the good guys uh that we have more women in my company than men good you know, that's not forced, by the way, just how it played out and good, for, good for it, you know, but that we, there is no need to force any of that stuff. It, it can naturally be the way that it is. Now, I, I don't get a certain thing in this world. Uh, it's probably from being raised by a single mother who really struggled financially, but I can't understand for the life of me why it makes sense to anybody that there is a wage gap, a disparity in wages between men and women it doesn't make any sense to me. Not because I'm like a bleeding heart, not because I'm going to fight for everything but just because it doesn't make any sense to me like you know so meta is very much a company that's intended to build the creative community that's what it's about and meta m-e-t-a is an acronym that stands for media which is what we do education which is what i care about technology which is what sets us aside because i've done a lot of innovation in technology storytelling and advancement which is advancing our creative community and our personal community so if you can bull all those things together, Meta Studios makes sense. It's kind of like a mission. Um, and, you know, wh what we do is uh, we 
are in the business of, of making content, uh, building it. We're publishing right now with Fair Request and we're building out the publishing arm. And as we go, uh, we expect to be in production on this and that and then eventually just build ourselves out and, and go from here. You don't need to be in L.A. Everyone just tells you need to be there. I've lived there twice and I've not enjoyed it both times. <laughs> All right, so we talked about Warped. We talked about uh, Fairy Quest. Are there any other projects that are currently in development that you can tease? And, and how has COVID affected the whole production uh, and your work life? Well, you know, I mean, uh, we all know the answer to COVID, right? COVID's no yeah. fun for anybody. Uh, we are getting by. Um, COVID is a challenge for everybody because production has stopped or ground to a halt, and certainly there's not a lot of it, but we have some ways around that. Um, I think for us, we're probably concentrating in the next year or two, we hope, on game design and gaming because, um, and then building that out into the film uh, uh, production. Um, animation project. We, so here's what I'll tease. We have one animation project that's in development right now with a co-publisher, someone who actually specialized in a form of animation. So we're doing that. Uh, we are kind of waiting on a call right now uh, about a project. Um, it, there, there are times when this business can be really infuriating because ultimately, uh, as the French philosopher said, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. So we're waiting uh, to some extent on the funding to come in to an, a, a second group that wants us to come in and produce a project for them. Uh, we can't do anything about their funding. Right. So we're sort of like holding on that. Uh, we're raising funds ourselves. Um, we have a co-producer here in Georgia that uh, we're going to do a couple of projects with. Uh, so we are also developing a TV show um, that is based on on my life to some extent. Because, uh, man, I tell you what, I've got a life story that is probably a cut above a lot of people's. You know, my life story starts with me sit, sitting in a caravan at five years old, you know. Um, so it's an interesting project that we're doing. Um, loads of stuff, really. We're we're incredibly busy, but COVID puts a damper on production, you know. But we're excited. Sorry, I was going to say one last thing, which is we are really excited about the fact that here comes Fairy Quest and here comes Warped. Right? We're actually going to. I'm just, you know, I'm. We did Warped in one day, and it was one day of chaos, right? With a bunch of actors running around and recording stuff and just having fun on a set. So we're kind of editing it now and we found out that there's some sound issues because we just kind of ran in and did it, right? And I'm like, oh, I don't like that. So we're fixing sound issues. It takes a bit. But give it a few days and we will have the first episode of Warped coming out um, in which our um, our captain, Captain Plackett, who's the Londoner, uh, he finds out. It, basically, it's, it's all about the first officer, a guy called Grocknar, who's really, really, really uptight. <laughs> and so... Because he's uptight and he does his job. He's this alien guy and he's really, really uptight and everyone on the ship just hates him. Um, so it's kind of a little little t short about Grocknar and how, how awful he is. Um, but we're going to be trying to do about one of those a month and just put them out. And, you know, we're, we're so cheap, right? So we're going to repurpose our special effects. <laughs> we paid for them and we'll just kind of turn them upside down and redo them again for, for the next episode, you know? <laughs> So uh, where can uh, our listeners go to support your work and to keep up with what you're up to? Well, um, you know, I would love it if people wanted to check out Fairy Quest on Indiegogo. That's easy to find. Just look for Fairy Quest. Um, uh, come and find us at Meta Studios, M-E-T-A, Meta Studios on, on YouTube. Um, 
You can find me at my Paul Jenkins on Twitter, but you can also find me on Facebook and you can find Meta Studios on Facebook, Meta Studios on Instagram. It'd be Meta Studios Atlanta. So we're putting out Fablewood stuff right now. We're teasing a new project as well. Um, another one that we have coming up is we're going to be making out a playable card game with a bunch of really stupid characters. Uh, so that should be fun too. You know, That'll be crowdfunding. That's fantastic. The uh, graphic novel is Fairy Quest. Uh, we're here with Paul Jenkins of Meta Studios. Paul, thank you so much for the interview. We've had a blast talking to you. All right. Likewise. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. All right, folks, there you have it. After this next, our final break, we'll be back with some nerd commendations. Don't go anywhere. And we're back with our patented nerd commendations. Seriously, look it up. Call the patent office. Nerd commendations. They are patented. Chris, what do we got? I'm creating a consistent theme for this episode. I'm recommending Paul Jenkins' Spider-Man books. Um, it starts with Peter Parker's Spider-Man Volume 2. Uh, he wrote issues 20 to 41 and 44 to 50, pencils by Mark Buckingham. Um, and then my personal favorite Spider-Man books of his are Spectacular Spider-Man Volume 2, 1 through 22, and number 27. Um Thankfully, he had nothing to do with the sins remembered of 23 through 26. The less Boo. said about that, Boo. The, the less said about uh, that, the better. Um, and it features some of my favorite art by one of my favorite artists, Umberto Ramos, who is also working on Fairy Quest. So if you go, if you're a fan of Umberto Ramos' art um, and Paul Jenkins' writing, you know, the Fairy Quest uh, book that, that he was talking about uh, on Indiegogo in, in our interview, those two are teaming up again. Um, and, and I just love, like, what he brings to the character of Peter Parker. Um, and I love, you know, we talked about this in the interview, but, like, how he approaches, like, the mental aspects of the character. And it, it really feels like this uh, this completely immersive experience. Like, you feel like you're Peter and, like, that straight-level you know, aspect of the character and his relationships outside the costume um, are just so well represented. And, you know, he said this in the interview as well, like Peter Parker being a teacher. That's some of the best Spider-Man comics. You know, my favorite Spider-Man comics um, are when he is working with Horizon Labs and being a scientist and just geeking out. And then, you know, when he's a teacher, I mean, I'm fully biased here, but when he's a teacher, I think that's Peter at his best with the JMS run and, and, you know, with, uh, with Paul's writing here, uh, it's just fantastic. So you can find all these on Marvel unlimited. You find them on comiXology and, um, you know, they've also been collected as well, but I, I really, really love, um, these comics just completely disregard since remembered 23 through 26 of spectacular that doesn't that doesn't count we don't talk about those issues but he had nothing to do with them so we're good you know i'm actually glad you recommend this because i have read some of jenkins run on peter parker spider-man in particular um and i liked it a great deal now i've not read everything um that he contributed to the character but um i really think i need to I have lots of fond memories of Death in the Family in particularly, especially the climax. There's something so liberating about watching Spidey walking away from master manipulator Norman Osborn and basically just refusing to play his stupid little games. Uh, 
this time it was not the spider caught up in the web of the Green Goblin, and I love that climax so much for that. What bugs me a little bit is how little fans of the character seem to bring up Jenkins' run anymore when talking about the all-time greats. I think the stories of his that I've read easily sit uh, sit alongside some of the the best Spider-Man writers. Uh, even you know recently Dan Slott's run. I think there's a that they're easily as good. Yet people hardly seem to mention Jenkins much anymore in the discussion of you know strong Spider-Man writers. Now I I've not actually read any of the his run on Spectacular with Ramos, but I really want to uh, because. I, Besides really enjoying Jenkins' writing, Ramos' artwork is so uh, kinetically uh, filled with energy, and I, I just enjoy looking at his art every time I get a chance to. So I can see that pairing extremely well with Jenkins. So yeah, I'm, I, I'm just echo this. This is good stuff, and I think I need to pick up the rest of this uh, of his run and really get into it. And and we touched on this on like in uh, our nerd news segment, but like a lot of Spider-Man fans have only read like the A title Amazing Spider-Man and and I did uh I talked about this before on the show it's like um I I've read all issues of Amazing but then I went and we- and read um all of Spectacular as well and and in a lot of ways I enjoyed reading the books of Spectacular a lot more um it's kind of like those like little hole in the wall restaurants that you find where you get like the best burger in town that not a lot of people know about Spectacular Spider-Man, you know, it even starts out in volume one with like Jerry Conway, who I hold in super high regard. Um, and then you have Paul Jenkins come on and then you have, you know, J.M. DeMatteis, you know, writing Spectacular. And then you have like all of these like legends uh, of writing um, that that are on the B book. Um, so you're really, really missing out if you're not checking out the B titles. Um, I just I just need to say this. This is this is needs to be like printed on trade paperbacks from now on forth as a pull quote from from Chris Spectacular Spider-Man the hole in the wall with the best burger in town that <laughs> that is a selling point right there we we just need to put that on every trade paperback that's of Spectacular it. Spider-Man that's moving it forward right there. <laughs> but yeah, so that's probably and that's probably why you don't see Jenkins name mentioned with with JMS and with Stan um and with you know slot even and you know all of those writers i fully enjoy and they're some of my favorites as well but you know a lot of people haven't read these books and and it's really a shame um because they only go to the main amazing titles but you know with with digital you know comics everywhere now with with marvel unlimited especially i i binged through all of these within a couple of days because it's just fantastic stuff yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I need to definitely pick up the rest of his run and and really dig into it. Now, Dave, you're going uh, you're going indie on us. Tell us about the woods. Oh, I'm gonna embarrass myself here. I'm pretty sure just with pronunciation of names. Um, but you know, I love comic books, and I will get a hold of them however I can. Uh, that means that I frequently supplement my regular purchases with trips to the local public libraries. I'm not ashamed of that. If uh, they have comic books, I will show up at the library and I will read as many of them as I can. On one such trip, I came across a series of trade paperbacks written by James Tinian IV with art by Michael Dialinus uh, called The Woods. Since I enjoyed some of Tinian's DC work, I decided to give it a shot and I checked out all nine trade paperbacks from the public library. So here's the hook. 
On October 16, 2013, 437 students, 52 teachers, and 24 additional staff from Bay Point Preparatory High School in suburban Milwaukee vanished without a trace. Countless light years away, they find themselves in the middle of an ancient primordial wilderness. Where are they? Why are they there? This book reminded me a little bit of the first season of Lost, a strange setting, a group of people who don't know each other well, an overarching mystery, and a need to survive. Don't get me wrong, these woods are a lot stranger than the island from Lost. At the same time, since we're dealing with teenagers here, there's uh, also lots of teen drama and angst. Uh, the book balances these aspects incredible, incredibly well. Tinian's writing sings here, create, creating a large cast of distinct characters. Uh, the art has a slightly cartoony look that allows the characters to be extremely expressive, which works particularly well in those quieter teen drama moments. Um, it also, uh, though, doesn't get in the way of the, the freakier designs, which enhance the mystery and the bizarre nature of the woods. It's pretty rare for me to literally devour a series. I will oftentimes enjoy comic books, but I want to stretch out the experience and, drink, and basically read them in small sips. But the woods, I could not put down. I actually read all nine volumes of The Woods in a single sitting. It drew me in, I cared about the characters, and I wanted to unravel the mystery. The book ran for 36 issues at Boom Studios, won several awards, including Best Graphic Novel for Young Adults, and a Glad Media Award for Outstanding Comic Book. In short, this is good stuff. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm totally intrigued by this. And the more I see of Boom Studios, the more like I really need to check into this publishing line. I really, really enjoyed the um, TMNT Power Rangers crossover that I recommended a while back. And, and that was done in part with Boom Studios. And I think they do the regular Power Rangers um, title. Um, but I'm really, really intrigued by this. It's a really cool, interesting premise. And the fact that this won a GLAAD Media Award it makes it really, really interesting to me. And just doing a quick bio search on James Tinian, um, he's an openly bisexual writer. And I've always been fascinated by, um, you know, taking in work by people who live a different lifestyle than me. I, I like reading black writers. I like reading LGBT writers, uh, female writers, simply because they see the world, um, you know, from a different point of view that I could never attain. And, and this is something that's super, super interesting to me. And I'm definitely going to have to check this one out. Well, there you have it, folks. That's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoy our podcast, please give us a rating or review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're available everywhere podcasts can be found, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and, of course, YouTube. You can also find us on Twitter at Nerd Byword and individually at That Nerd Chris and at That Nerd Dave. You can also hit us up on Instagram at NerdByWord and Facebook at the NerdByWord. Um, we are wrapping up September episodes, and then we head into October to a project that I am interested about, but not necessarily, I would say, excited about, but we're getting a little spooky, Dave. Yeah, I think we're going to be raising your blood pressure a little bit. As someone who is not that into scary movies, uh, exposing you to some Halloween classics is going to be, well, 
one of my favorite projects of the month of October. So we want to thank, I guess thank, my pal and loyal listener Jeremy Arnold for this idea. He said, "You're the, I love your podcast, but the one thing that you're missing is you need more horror. So I guess that's what we're going to do. So we will be foregoing our nerd commendations for the month of October uh, in favor of like uh, one classic horror movie of each subgenre uh, each week of October, and and that's going to be replacing our nerd commendations. I'm going to be subjected to um, a zombie movie, a slasher movie, a ghost movie, what have you, each week for October. So um, keep the lights on, guys, for me, uh, and stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>